Today's podcast is sponsored by Doit. Reduce your cloud spend by improving your cloud efficiency with Doit, an award-winning strategic partner of Google Cloud and AWS. Find out more at doit.com. That's D-O-I-T dot com. Hello, amazing listeners. This is a special edition of Day 2 Cloud we're calling Cube Conversations. I spent two days in the Windy City attending KubeCon Cloud Native Con in Chicago. I had the opportunity to speak to a wide array of vendors and open source maintainers about what's going on in the cloud native ecosystem. From those conversations, I picked up on two major themes, specifically platform engineering and security. This is part one of a two-part episode that's focused on platform engineering and building platforms for engineers. We'll start first with my conversation with Cole Morrison, a developer advocate at HashiCorp, delving into his thoughts on what it means to practice platform engineering. Joining me now for the Day 2 Cloud Cube Conversations is Cole Morrison from HashiCorp. Welcome to the show, Cole. Um, why don't you introduce yourself to the fine folks and tell us a little bit about what you do at HashiCorp. Well, as you said, my name is Cole Morrison, and I'm a developer advocate at HashiCorp uh, in terms of focus on tooling, mainly infrastructure and networking. Uh, nowadays, though, uh, you catch me on any given day, I may be talking about any one of our products. And in terms of what I do, I mean, you know what developer advocates do. <laughs> I mean, we're all over the place. So Yes, uh, indeed. And we saw each other not that long ago in San Francisco. We see each other all the time, Ned. I try to hook you up. It's kind of weird. I'm not stalking oh, wait, you. Stop I'm following me. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> we are going to talk today a little bit about platform engineering because of the two big themes that I've been hearing out of this year's KubeCon. Platform engineering keeps coming up. Is that a topic that you've been hearing a lot about as well? Look, here's my thing, right? When I got into the space like years ago, I'd never even heard platform engineering, right? It was just sort of ops. It was like sysadmin, right? And then it was DevOps. And that's what I went with, DevOps. In fact, prior to HashiCorp, I ran an education platform called AWS DevOps, right? And it was teaching what we now more or less call platform engineering. So it keeps coming up uh, because... Whether you are on the developer side or the operations side, everything's sort of moving in this direction where you have a platform, you're deploying applications, right? And as a result, you need people to manage that type of code, that type of infrastructure. So you're doing it already more than likely is kind of what I'm getting at. You've all been doing it for a while. We're just calling it something different, in my opinion. So now we have a formal name for it. Do you think that platform engineering and DevOps are equivalent or is there a subtle distinction between the two? Depending upon who you ask, you'll see people saying stuff like, oh, DevOps is dead. Long live platform engineering. Where people will be like, oh, DevOps is just like the skill set that a platform engineer uses. I kind of like that approach more so because saying you're a DevOps engineer is a bit more all-encompassing. Where saying you're a platform engineer, it identifies you directly to what it is that you're trying to do. And usually that is you have a team of developers that need to deploy applications and services. They need to put it onto a platform, that being your infrastructure and all the glue code that manages that. And you are the team that manages that platform. So companies will see teams, platform engineering teams, and what they do, right? They develop, say, all of 
your AWS accounts. They give them certain templates. They set them up with certain predefined networking uh, networks and Kubernetes clusters and the like. And they make it such that you as the developer can just hand them your application more or less. It deploys it and you just stay streamlined on that workflow as opposed to having to know all of it. Right. So it's about enabling your developers to do a little bit of self-service. Yes. And provide them with, I've heard this term a few times, the golden path. Oh, right. Right. The fictional, I mean, sorry, the golden, <laughs> yes. Yes, right? Where it works all the time, every time, but more or less, you take the friction out of new deployments. Yeah. Right. So I heard a little bit of uncertainty about the golden path and its terminology. What about your thoughts on the golden path is sparking that? The golden path is much like a lot of anything else that we call golden is an ideal, right? It's going to be very specific to a case that whoever is talking to you about it has constructed it for. But the reality is everyone's business, everyone's needs are different. As a result, that path is going to look different. So I would say that then the golden path is going to be your golden path, not the golden path, if that makes sense. That does make sense. I took it to mean that this is the recommended path and you can stray off of it a little bit, but this is the easiest way to go. What's going to take you to the land of Oz? Yes, yes, yes. Of course. The guardrails, right? This is the general way, but along the way you might encounter some witches, some weird <laughs> Maybe. We'll stretch this metaphor out. Right, yeah. So as a result, sure, follow that road. It'll take you there. Um, but be aware of the fact that you are going to have to more than likely trailblaze every so often to make it fit what it is that you're doing. Right, you're going to have to go off the beaten path. Yeah. I liken it to the idea that you can't lock people in like the roller coaster. Yeah. And you know they're just along for the ride. You have to give them a little more freedom of movement. So try to create a highway for them to, you know, go as fast as they want to. But if they need to divert off to an arterial road because of new technology they're trying to adopt, that's certainly an option. And the platform engineering team needs to help and try support that. Right there. That, man, you wrap that up into a really good analogy because then that is what the platform engineering team is doing. Right? They have to build the off-ramp. Yes, yes. To the Golden Path Highway. <laughs> they also need to maintain the Golden Path to an extent, right? The infrastructure uh, underlying all of it such that you can just get the stuff out there. Yeah. So uh, to what degree does the platform engineering team need to interact with the developers? Ideally, you're just a file on my server and I don't really want to talk to you, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you sound like a very uh, old soul sysadmin right there. <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, you know, the developer can be like, you're just an empty box without me, right? But you need both. Ideally, right, we want separation of concerns, but the more each side understands each other, the more communication that there is. Granted, you want to automate it as much as possible. We don't want to do tickets and the like. We do want self-service, but to hit that true, like, yummy self-service, there does have to be that complete understanding up front, right? Well, we are here at KubeCon mm. slash CloudNativeCon. Oh, that's where we are? That's uh, allegedly. Oh, right. That's what the logo says that's yeah. right next to me. So oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> and since we're here, mm -hmm. would you say that Kubernetes is a, an integral part of platform engineering? Can you platform engineer without Kubernetes? Objectively, nothing is necessary, right? Objectively, you can go about constructing your platform with any given tools out there. But if we go from a self-centered developer standpoint, self-centered ops standpoint, where you are also a human being trying to come into the job market, right? 
sure. it's a vital part of our ecosystem. It's not going anywhere. You do need to know it. The, the, the more you know about it, the better off you're going to be. But of course, there are plenty of other options out there, depending upon what you're trying to handle that can and may take you the way you're trying to go and may take you even further. I'm going to throw a curveball at you because oh, okay. like you, you're, you're giving a look at me like throw me a curveball, Ned. So I'm going to do that. Mm. Edge is another big thing I've been oh, hearing okay. about. Right. How does Edge factor into platform engineering? The deeper we get into Edge, the more interesting it becomes because the devices and the closer you can put them to people, the better results you're going to get. And as a result, managing that is so much more difficult because prior, everything's in one place, right? And then it just sure. moved to the cloud, which is still just kind of like, what, 32 places in the case. Somebody else's place. Yeah, and now it's like, oh, we're going to your place, right? We're going to your place. You're going to do some computing, and I still need to manage that. That's a little come back up. And if we can use these different tools out there, so things like Kubernetes and the like, or like HashiCorp Nomad, for example, to enable a simpler workflow, which is what ultimately all platform engineering is trying to do, then we can get off the sharp edge, maybe. I don't know. I'm looking for a joke there. I'm just curious, because I'm thinking now, because of the nature of edge, the distributed nature, and the fact that you're trying to manage hundreds or thousands of nodes and do a relatively smooth application rollout and management of that environment, it almost seems like that's the perfect opportunity to build a platform engineering practice because without that, you're going to have a hell of a time managing all that stuff. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that, that is exactly it because you're doing it whether you want to admit it or not, right? <laughs> that's right. Are we going to put a ring on it or not? I mean, that's just, yeah, you get where I'm going with that. You're going to have those issues. And this is what I'll say all the time about, um, say, for example, service mesh, right? Or any of the different problems that, that we solve at HashiCorp. You're solving those one way or another. The problem exists. Yeah. And especially when you head towards golly, a dizzying amount of nodes with dizzying amounts of capabilities and variances, you want standardization as much as you can. Right. Um, not just for sanity, but also security. Right, and you need standardization that can hang around for a while because replacing a thousand nodes in the cloud is as simple as an API. Replacing a thousand nodes <laughs> out in the edge, <laughs> that's rolling a bunch of trucks. Yeah, that results in a flex once you get it done. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, we've covered platform engineering in the cloud and at the edge. Does everyone need platform engineering? Is there a certain scale you have to reach to need it? If you're just a one-person shop, you're going to be doing it if you're deploying something production-ready. You may be wearing a different hat, but as that grows, as you start having more scale and more time needed towards managing the thing, running your services and your applications, you will probably split out into that. So in terms of is it needed, the idea, the skill set is going to be needed at every level if you're deploying something serious. Whether or not you start pushing that out to a different team, that is going to be a question of scale, right? Right. Okay. So that's the organizational side of things. But I think what I'm picking up here is at the end of the day, if you're deploying applications and you're responsible for managing their monitoring and their operations, you're already platform engineering. Yeah. Just like you were software engineering, just like you were front-end engineering, then you were back-end engineering. Now you're working on the platform. And then... Who knows what comes after this? Yeah. I'm doing a podcast with Ned. <laughs> Is that the ultimate goal? <laughs> that, yeah, that's the marketing engineering, right? Awesome. Right? So, Cole, is there anything that you would like to promote, to mention, uh, sites you'd like to push people towards to check out in the world of platform engineering or HashiCorp? Yeah, obviously, 
check out all of HashiCorp's products and tools. That's what they're meant for here, talking about this problem in applications, networking, security, and infrastructure. And I mean, me saying anything else, Ned, since you cover so much about it, it's probably... <laughs> but I guess the thing that I will say is it's much like a lot of other terms in our industry platform engineering, it's going to change what it is and what it means. But the core skill set there of having something that sits underneath both your services and for your teams isn't going anywhere. So whether you're a developer that is just trying to stay in your software code and whether you're an ops person, you don't care about the code, you're going to be better at both sides of this equation if you invest some time into understanding this field, the skill set, platform engineering in general. So I would say moving forward, invest in it. For those of you here at KubeCon, I mean, they're already doing it, but otherwise watch Ned's podcast because he goes, well, well, you don't watch a podcast, listen to it, watch him because he goes a ton into it. Invest in yourself. And that's probably the best advice. Cole Morrison from HashiCorp. Thank you so much for being on Day 2 Cloud. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you, Ned. Absolutely. Next up, I had a chance to talk to Merle Thirumale from Portworks. He's a fascinating character and someone who made me rethink the way we use the term platform. Joining me now for the day two Cloud Cube conversations is Merle Thirumale, the GM of Portworks, their cloud native business. And we're going to be talking about how platform engineering and Kubernetes intersect and some fresh news they've released for the conference. So let's start by welcoming Murley. Welcome to the show, Murley. How are you doing? Hey, Ned. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely delightful. How's the conference been for you so far? You know, it is really great to see yet another large, mature crowd for uh, Kubernetes. And, and I must say that I think... This year, we're seeing the real prolonged effects of large enterprises embracing Kubernetes mm. in the sense that there's a lot of mature platforms. While there's a lot of new things, there's the sense of confidence in Kubernetes and a sense of scale that we're seeing that is remarkably kind of ahead of what we've seen in past conferences. Right, the last time I was able to go to a KubeCon was 2019. And that was more of a, people were in the discovery phase, exploring what was going on with Kubernetes. Now it does feel, you're right, very much mature. There's established players. This is real deal stuff. We're not just tinkering around in our basements anymore. You know, mission critical applications now running on, yeah. on this stuff, not just test beds. That's wild. So how does Portworks fit into the Kubernetes story? It's very simple. You know, Kubernetes really is about managing apps and data, right, together. And what most of the distributions of Kubernetes that you see out there, OpenShift, uh, EKS, GKE, AKS, all of those are about managing the application. What Portworks does is we complement the Kubernetes distros by having an attachment to it, essentially like a clamshell that fits underneath and we manage the data part. So we manage storage, we manage backup, we manage disaster recovery, so we manage data. So together, apps and data are managed by the combination of the Kubernetes distro and Portworks. Right, when you think about apps, they're not much without their data. That's kind of an important component. Exactly, <laughs> yep. Well, the thing I wanted to talk to you about is the rise of platform engineering. It's something that I keep hearing from folks at the conference and even before then. So what do you think of when you think of platform engineering? Platform engineering essentially is a continuation of the DevOps concept that's been around for over a decade. It's really the formalization of it from being a cultural concept to now 
being both an organizational and technical set of tools and you know ownership in the organization. Let's start with the organization part because it's easy to start with, right? Sure. So essentially now, platform engineering is the concept of taking Kubernetes shadow IT and consolidating <laughs> it. So there were a lot of Kubernetes islands that people were deploying you know, in their own individual groups. Sure. Now, when there's enough of those, the organizations come together and said, hey, let's put all of these together, create a central team that is responsible for having a budget, for having a curated stack, mm -hmm. right? As well as an organization that owns this responsibility and provides this as a service. So it's very similar to what we used to see with the cloud. So, you know, cloud was shadow IT all over the place, and now you have consolidated organizations managing cloud engineering. So this is the equivalent of cloud engineering, except it's now for Kubernetes and container deployment, right? So the other part of that is the curated stack, right? So people, they don't want 10 different flavors of experimental stuff going on when there's no need for it, right? So the platform engineering team now has a budget, it's got a team, and third, it has a curated stack that it is responsible for. Now, notice that the platform engineering team doesn't really run the apps. That's the user community, that's the developer community. Okay. So it's very similar, it's sort of like uh, a new software infrastructure team that is now providing this as a service now to developers. So it is really responsible for creating the curated stack, creating guardrails, and providing support and a reliable place that, you know, that they can guarantee it'll run. Gartner used a great phrase, they said, platform engineering now are creating paved roads for Kubernetes deployment. Now it's not going to be as bumpy a ride as you trying it out on your own. <laughs> right. It's a paved road, it's all set up, it's the tarmac, right? It's, it's going to work every time. Ideally, you'd like the development teams, the application teams, to stay on that paved road. Yes. But they may look off in the horizon and see interesting things that they'd like to experiment with. How do you incorporate the trailblazers yeah. into your platform engineering team? The beauty of the Kubernetes ecosystem is it's designed to be that way, right? It is designed to be a pluggable interface, right? It's really a thriving ecosystem as you're seeing at the show out here, right? Like we're sitting at the Portworx booth, it's a big booth relative to some of the other booths out there, but there's a section of the floor here where there's a whole lot of new people, right? Yeah. And all of those are all part of a pluggable ecosystem. It's an open source kind of model. And so the beauty of this is it's sort of like a live organism, right? It's got a heart and a stomach, and, a, and, and <laughs> but then there's all kinds of little new limbs being formed, new things being experimented with. I have to tell you, this is a great example of what a maturing ecosystem looks like, right? So there are a few well-defined APIs. The CNCF is doing a great job kind of managing this with some kind of governance model. But at the same time, there's people who can come up with all kinds of ways to kind of make this work. You know, uh, we had a customer dinner yesterday and one of our largest customers, a major automotive manufacturer, got up on stage and had a great phase about how they use Kubernetes, how they use Portworx. He said, he tells his developers, experiment freely, but deploy responsibly. Okay. And I love the combo because it represents exactly what you talked about. Platform engineering lets you, you know, deploy responsibly because you can't afford for these now more and more mission critical things running on containers for it to be kind of uh, unreliable deployment. But at the same time, 
the ecosystem is such that you can experiment freely with it. Makes sense, yeah, that experimentation is what could potentially give you the edge exactly. when in a very competitive business environment. So you don't want to stop that innovation but you want to direct it, make sure, like you said, they're deploying responsibly. Yeah, well, you know, when a technology has matured, like for example, the Portworks technology now can ensure that you have a resilient deployment. You have high availability, you have persistent data, that you can have disaster recovery working. Those are not areas you need to experiment with anymore, right? Those work. You can experiment with some other areas. For example, one of the things that we are beginning to do now is offer database as a service managed underneath Kubernetes. Now that's a relatively new area. I would say, you know, it's an area where we're jointly kind of creating this new set of capabilities with our customers. And that's an example where people can experiment in the area of data, but they don't need to experiment on storage and, and you know, HA and DR and backup. Right, so some of the components that make up that database as a service offering, those are proven, well understood components, and now you're just experimenting with the database as a service portion, knowing that the underlying core components will support what you're trying to do. Yep, that's it. Interesting, so in your estimation, uh, how does Portworks fit into the larger platform engineering story? So there are you know, several things about platform engineering, right? There's various aspects. We talked about container orchestration itself, right? That is a major area, and there are many, many major platforms there, right? Sure. So there are sub-platforms within platform engineering, right? The other one is security, obviously, right? There are many vendors who offer a whole range of security. So security could be you know, role-based access control. It could be encryption. It could be checking container images. So there are various platforms and security is itself like a whole, you know, there's a couple of different <laughs> platform areas. A third area is observability. So observability, end-to-end -end monitoring, using that to provide chargebacks and billing systems is a third example of another platform area. And then the last one is data, right? So clearly, Portworks is an example of a data on Kubernetes platform. And so there are multiple sub-platform areas within platform engineering, and all of those together form the practice of platform engineering. Wow, okay. I'm going to need to let that percolate in my brain for <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Platform is one of those overloaded terms. Right. Uh, like service or solution. And you sit back and you're like, oh, it's like turtles all the way down here. Right. It's hard to pick it apart. But I think it's useful to break it apart into those sort of subcategories yep. to better understand what you need to build a full platform for your internal team. Exactly. Now, I'm guessing there were some announcements that Portworks made uh, during KubeCon. Anything you'd like to highlight for listeners? One of the uh, particular things that we're very excited about, this area that I was just talking about, about database as a service. Now you think about this, Ned, if you go out to the large clouds, right, there's well-known services that have been there around for a long time. Example is RDS from, yep. you know, well-known, right? And, and Mongo now has a service, the Atlas that they offer. Well, when you look at the on-prem model, right, or even on the cloud, there is a huge range of databases. There's five, 600 databases, and they're all there for a reason. Every developer likes their own database for some reason. They like the schema. They like the sharding model. So how can you take your favorite database and still be able to run it 
in a service-like manner, the benefits you get of ease of use, reliability, and the metering that you get from services like RDS. Well, that's one of the things that Portworx offers. So we have a cleverly named product called Portworx Data Services. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nothing original in that name. It's just like RDS, there's PDS. And what PDS offers is a set of curated databases, 16 data services, really. So okay. it includes things like Postgres, Redis, Mongo, uh, Cassandra and Kafka. So these are very commonly used modern you know, data services that we now offer in a DBAS form. So a data service as a service. And essentially, you can plug it into Kubernetes and now all of these things are incredibly simple to use. They are consumed as a service by the developer and offered by platform engineering as a data service. Right? The idea here is day one, you can deploy all of these different data services the exact same way. It's the same way to deploy them, a single pane of glass to manage them. They're upgraded the same way, they're patched the same way. So the idea is again, like let's simplify and hide the complexity of all of these different data services under one common interface and operating model using PDS. Right, and I think it's really important to highlight that what you're trying to abstract is the operational model exactly. behind working with those databases, not the actual interaction with that database the developer would have. The data service are all very different from each other. Right. Each one has some capabilities that is unique to it, right, and maybe offers performance, may offer a different sharding mechanism, like I said, and different schema creation, but all of that is retained, but what we're telling you is how you run it. It goes back to that classic platform engineering. We don't want to, want to tell you what to run but we want to tell you that you can run it reliably. Right, and to get back to that experimentation aspect of platform engineering, if I'm building a platform, one of the big challenges I'm going to have is supporting all these different database types. You got it. I'm, you know, I'm going to get people asking me for a vector database, which I don't even know what that is yet, but I hear it's a thing, and then there's time series databases, there's no SQL type databases, traditional relational databases, and I want to empower my developers to pick the database or data service that works best with the application they're writing, but I don't want to learn how to manage 16 different database types. We've got some space on the sales teams for you to kind of <laughs> come in and, and join us. Well, no, I just, I intuitively understand it because I've been in the position where a development team is asking me for a database deployment and I don't understand how to manage it. I know how to, how to work with Microsoft SQL, I know how to work with MySQL, and now you're asking me for cockroach DB or something, I've never touched this thing. I don't know how to management, I don't know what the pitfalls are and the gotchas of working with that platform, and I don't have time necessarily to learn all that, so if you're telling me you can offer it as a managed service, yes, yeah, sign me up, that sounds great. And I'm maintaining my portability between cloud platforms, because I'm now not consuming it from a particular cloud platform with their weird spin on it. Yeah, you know, look, the Portworx mission is very, very simple, right? We're all about increasing developer velocity. So how do you increase developer velocity and enable and say yes to developers without having a huge burden yourself, right? And that's kind of where the platform engineering concept and DBAS as well as you know, bringing databases underneath Kubernetes kind of is headed.
we're very excited about this. I think we're seeing a lot of customers embrace it, and we hope that the next KubeCon, this becomes sort of a, another part of the core platform. <laughs> another platform of platforms, if you will. <laughs> Excellent. Well, if folks want to learn more about this, DBaz or anything else having to do with Portworx, where's the best place for them to go? It's very simple, go to portworx.com. We've got a, a website that will be an ideal place to not just learn, but also try. You know, we've got a, a variety of free services, free trials, various ways that you can sample Portworks. And of course, you can always call us. We've got information on the website to how to contact us, and then we can follow up with as light a touch. <laughs> this community doesn't always want to meet a salesperson right away, but we've got the whole range of ways to engage with Portworks. Fantastic. Well, Murley, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Ned's a pleasure. Thanks. While we're talking about databases, I had a chance to sit down and talk with Deepthi Sigaretia about her role in maintaining the open source project Vitesse and how Vitesse supports scalable database services with sharding and horizontal scaling. Today's sponsor, Doit, can help you with your cloud challenges. Maybe you want to maximize your cloud use while controlling your costs. Perhaps the issue is balancing resource utilization while delivering agile IT. Maybe you just can't get good support from your cloud partners. Doit can help. An award-winning strategic partner of Google Cloud and AWS, Doit works with over 3,000 customers to save them time and money. Doit combines intelligent software with expert consultancy and unlimited support to deliver cloud at peak efficiency with ease. The Doit team knows multi-cloud, cloud analytics, optimization, governance, Kubernetes, AI, and more. Work with Doit to optimize your cloud investment so you can stay focused on business growth. Learn more at doit.com. That's D-O-I-T dot com. Joining me now for the Day 2 Cloud Cube conversations is Deepthi Sigaretti, an engineer at PlanetScale and maintainer of Vitesse, to talk about what's going on with Vitesse and some fresh news that has been released during the conference. So Deepthi, welcome to the show. Can you please first give us a little background on Vitesse for those who might not be familiar with it? Vitesse was started at YouTube a long time ago now, back in 2010. And the reason Vitesse was started was because YouTube was having problems scaling their MySQL instance. They had a single MySQL instance that stored all the video metadata and it just couldn't scale to the number of users they were getting on a daily basis. When I think about the number of videos that's on YouTube now, that being on a single MySQL cluster, that sounds crazy. It's not the actual video data. Those files are stored in some other storage. It's right. just the metadata and still, still, it was too much. <laughs> yeah. So from those beginnings, Vitus eventually became open source, was donated to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, and it has been adopted at many other big companies like Slack, Square Cash, now Block Cash App, GitHub, HubSpot, Pinterest, and many others. How did you get involved in Vitesse? So uh, I actually joined PlanetScale as an engineer, and PlanetScale had just been formed as a company to build database as a service based on Vitesse. And I was the first engineer. At that time, there were two of us. There were two engineers. And Sugu, who was CTO of PlanetScale and co-founder, was basically the only person working on Vitesse. And Jitain, CEO and co-founder, along with Dan, head of engineering, was working on the PlanetScale side of things. And they said, we need help 
on open source. So we have two engineers. Let's pick one of them. Mm-hmm. Let's pick her to do open source. <laughs> so I became an open source Vitesse engineer back in 2018. And initially, I was a contributor. Then I became a maintainer. And when Sugu decided to step down from the project leadership, I became the project lead, which I've been doing for the last three years. Oh, wow. Okay. So project lead. So in terms of open source projects, for those who are not as familiar with the various roles, could you just compare and contrast those roles a little bit? Each open source project is different, but there are levels of contribution Mm -hmm. and roles that people play. Some people are volunteers and they're doing it basically on their time. But there are many people like me who are being paid by companies to work on open source. So there's that distinction as well. In terms of roles, you have users and usually users are running software, finding bugs, reporting issues and so on. Mm And then you have contributors who are contributing bug fixes, maybe contributing documentation, helping other users with their problems in some community forum, whether that's Slack or Discord or some other type of forum. And then you have maintainers who, first of all, have write permissions to the project. So they get to review the contributions Mm -hmm. and say yay or nay. Are we going to accept this contribution into the project? Does it fit in with the project vision or not? Mm -hmm. And maintainers also do a lot of the nuts and bolts work of running projects. They keep the issue trackers clean. They do CI. They do builds. They do releases. We have to keep upgrading dependencies. There are security vulnerabilities. So maintainers do all of this. And some projects have technical leads or project leads, and there may be one or more. And these are people who are sort of keeping an overall eye on things and really setting direction Mm. for the project. Okay. So you're all the way at the top. That's (laughs) awesome. One of the prevailing themes that I've been hearing at the conference is the idea of platform engineering. It's come up in a lot of conversations. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on platform engineering and where you think maybe Vitesse fits into the project engineering practice. It is becoming more and more common for large enterprises to provide platform as a service for their internal teams. And when they do that, they want to provide a whole gamut of tools that their engineering teams, their application development teams need, whether that is CI, continuous integration, CD, continuous delivery, frameworks, libraries, but also databases. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of applications need to store data and Even when people go to a microservices architecture and architect their apps as microservices, they still need a data store. Sure. Whether that's a monolithic shared data store across all the microservices or independent data stores. That just depends on the company. But this is a thing that is happening and a lot of companies are providing multiple databases as part of their internal offerings to their development teams. So we do see places where Vitus has been adopted as part of that suite of offerings that the platform team provides to their application teams. I see. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with the folks at Portworks, and they were talking about a database as a service offering that was not just one type of database because they recognized that developers will pick the database that best suits the way their application wants to function. And there's a lot of options out there. Yes, yes, that is correct. So we do see this. There are Vitus adopters where 
They provide Vitas as a service to their app development teams, but they also provide other things like, I don't know, HBase, MongoDB, mm-hmm. Postgres. It could be any database, whatever is either in their approved list or their developers are asking for. It could be one or the other. Right, right. And, and, you know, you have to let the developers kind of inform the decision of how the platform's designed because it ostensibly is for them to consume. <laughs> <laughs> so the test you mentioned started out at YouTube and it was because of the limitations of a traditional MySQL deployment. Does that mean that Vitesse is essentially MySQL, but better? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a great way of putting it. I think we'll make that the tagline, essentially MySQL, but better. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to. (laughs) That's a very good way of putting it. So Vitesse was invented to address the limitations of MySQL. MySQL is actually a great database, but Mm -hmm. any monolithic database has limitations. And some of the limitations that people encounter with MySQL are around availability and also around scaling. The MySQL team at Oracle has over time addressed some of these things. But the one thing that no one else does for MySQL other than Vitus is sharding, the horizontal scalability that you get with sharding. Okay. Because, yeah, when I think about availability and scalability in the database world, going back to when I was helping build out Microsoft SQL clusters, and so you'd set up like a read replica, essentially, when you wanted to scale out. But that read replica could only do reads. It had no other option. And if you needed more writes happening to the database, you just had to scale up the hardware that database was running on. Sharding sounds like it's something a little bit different, and I've heard the word, but if you want to like delve into the details a little bit, I'd definitely appreciate it. Definitely. As you said, one of the ways in which scalability was addressed was by just moving to larger and larger hardware. Mm-hmm. But at some point, it is either no longer cost-effective to buy bigger hardware because Mm -hmm. the cost of hardware doesn't go up linearly. It goes (laughs) up quadratically or exponentially or whatever it is with size. But also you may hit the limits of what hardware is even available. And there are actual web scale companies that have grown to a point where the hardware just isn't there for their scale. And an example of this is Facebook or Twitter. They all used MySQL, but they all built their own custom solutions around MySQL because they hit those limits. The way Vitus has solved the scaling issue is, first of all, you don't need to buy bigger hardware. You can add more of the cheap hardware. So you can buy 100 servers in place of one and it's all commodity hardware versus trying to buy one server which is 100x the size of your current server. Just right. to, like exaggerate a little <laughs> bit, right? But over time, that's what it ends up being. You double, you quadruple, eventually you are at 100x if you are a successful company. So what Vitus does is that you take all of your data and you distribute it across these multiple servers, which we call shards. And it provides a layer which abstracts that data distribution away from the application so that the application can act as if it's connecting to a single MySQL server. Mm-hmm. And Vitus will route the queries and combine the results if necessary and present them back to the application. And when you're writing data, it will write them in the correct place <laughs> so that you can fetch it back when you need it. I imagine there has to be some tuning and some different strategies employed for how to break up the data. My background is more in the networking and storage. And I know, especially when it comes to storage and managing a storage array, 
you had to be mindful of hotspots in the array and making sure that the data was distributed relatively evenly across the resources you had so that you get the maximum performance out of it. Is there a similar idea or concept in the world of Vitesse? Yes, yes. So the sharding strategies have been extended over time. You started at YouTube with some way of doing sharding, and then as people started adopting Vitesse, it was quickly realized that sharding needed to be more flexible. So there is a plugin architecture where people can even define custom ways of doing the sharding, but there are 10 plus different ways of built-in sharding keys. Beyond that, so obviously people have to choose their sharding key mindfully with the information that they have at the time when they do the sharding. Sure. But Vitus also allows you to change your mind. So let's okay. say you choose a way of sharding and it looks like your data is evenly distributed across your 8 or 16 shards, whatever you chose, right? But over time, maybe one of them starts running hot. It starts getting bigger and bigger. It's growing much faster than the others. You can actually split that one hot shard into two or three or four, whatever you need to, without touching everything else. They don't all have to be the same logical size uh, in terms of like the range that they cover. So you can do that. Or if you decide that whatever sharding strategy you used is actually not working for you because your query patterns changed or you pivoted your product and things look very different now, you can actually redo it. You can take your existing sharded cluster, you can migrate everything to a new cluster, which is sharded using a different key, and you can cut over with just a few seconds where writes are not allowed. Mm -hmm. You can continue to read during that time, right. and you can do an almost zero downtime cutover. Vitus supports this. That is very cool. And something that I wish had been available a long time ago on some projects I worked on. <laughs> so I understand that Vitesse 18 has gone generally available. What are the big improvements or highlights in that release? So the biggest one is that Vitesse now can manage foreign keys in the schema for you. Until now, we've taken a hands-off approach to foreign keys. People could define foreign keys in their schema if they wanted to and some things would not work. Mm. And that was the trade-off that they needed to accept. And obviously, they had to be within the same shard. With MySQL, you can't possibly have a cross-shard foreign key. Everything has to live within one server. So given the number of people who have cited foreign keys as a barrier to adopting Vitus, we decided that we should actually support it. So support is experimental in 18. We will build on it. There will be gaps. There will be some things that are still not supported. Mm -hmm. And those things are listed in the documentation. But what you get is that people who already have foreign keys in their MySQL database and want to migrate to Vitus can do so without giving up the foreign keys. And everything works except that online schema changes, which is a Vitesse feature, still will not work with foreign keys. And that just has to do with how MySQL implements certain things. There is a workaround for it, though, which is that PlanetScale publishes a fork of MySQL, which where we've done a patch to make online schema changes work. So that is an option for people who want to adopt that. But with Vanilla MySQL, there's still the limitation of not being able to use online schema changes. Everything else should work. And in future, we'll also do cross-shard foreign keys. Okay, so you can enable that feature with a flag. Yes. Okay, gotcha. So that's one big feature. Was there any other big releases or features? 
Yes. So MySQL compatibility is something that we have to keep improving, mm-hmm. partly because MySQL keeps adding syntax that we then have to catch up to, but also because there are certain very complex queries that just would not be efficient to do in a sharded setup. If you are taking a very complex query with subqueries and derived tables and unions and joins, and you try to scatter it to multiple shards and then gather the results back again, it turns out to be very inefficient. But what has happened over the last one to two years is that a lot of the query planning code has been rewritten based on academic work, based on work that has happened in other databases and been published in papers so that we can now handle a lot of these queries much more efficiently. So more and more and more of these complex queries are now supported by Vitess. Okay. I know queries are uh, magic (laughs) as far as I can tell. And there's one more thing, which is point-in-time recovery. So this is a feature that people want from every database. And Vitess actually had a version of point-in-time recovery, which has been around for, I'd say, four years. But it had one drawback, which is that you had to still run a third-party bin log server in order for the point-in-time recovery to work. Because you want to say, I want to restore to this specific point in time, and Mm -hmm. we needed to use this bin log server to translate that time to transaction ID to replay to. But over the last couple of releases, we have actually been able to move away from that so that you don't need to run yet another component, yet another process that then has to be highly available, has to be managed, has to be deployed. And within Vitess, we can actually do incremental backups, which we use as the basis for point-in-time recovery. All right. Very cool. If someone's interested in getting to know Vitess better, possibly contributing as more than just a user, what's a good place for them to go in and check it out? So the best place is our website, vitess.io, V-I-T-E-S-S.io. Should be easy to remember. <laughs> yeah. And there we have links to our GitHub and Slack. And Slack is where everybody hangs out. The maintainers are there. The users are there. And that's a great place for people to start. Awesome. Well, Deepthi, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you, Ned. It was a pleasure being here. That is going to do it for part one of the Platform Engineering Cube Conversations from KubeCon 2023. If you like this format, please let us know. If you hated this format, please let us know. This was a fun experiment, and I'd love to get everyone's feedback. You can ping us on LinkedIn. You can fill out the contact form on day2cloud.io, or you could even join the Packet Pushers Slack at packetpushers.com Slack. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll be talking to folks from Linode, Acorn Labs, F5 Dev Central, and Check.